All right, Zig coming in on the top. Today on the show, um, we are joined by the Chicago-based band Mears, M-I-I-R-R-O-S, Mears. Um, I left off the description of the music because I'm not quite sure how to define it, but it's good. And I'm joined by Sean Renos and Ryan McSweeney, um, drummer and singer-songwriter. And together, they are Mears. They have a new album out called Motion and Picture. It's available now on all streaming platforms. And we're going to listen to a tune. This is the first tune off the record called Parallax. Warming yourself by the fire Hum with the sound of the wire Come to the front of the line No, that's not blood on my teeth just coming here off the street Into the place where we eat Bro, you'll do it forever You'll soldier
All right. The tune, Parallax, Motion Pictures, the record, um, Mirrors, the band. Available now on all streaming platforms. Check it out. The whole record is fantastic. They do a really, really cool version of a Jeff Buckley uh, demo called Gunshot Glitter. And uh, it's definitely, definitely worth your guys' time. Um, this interview was a, it was a bit um, sonically. There was some weird, weird occurrences. Um, it was done on one of those um, conference call things, so it's got a tone to that. And like, uh, I think Brian was moving somewhere, or, like doing something. So there's there's weird sounds and noise throughout it. But for the most part, it's audible. Uh, very minor things. I did a pretty good job of cleaning it up. But there's gonna be some weird, weird uh, if ands or whats. But what they get into is what matters, and we get into it in this conversation. Before we get into this conversation, if you can like, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast on any of the podcast platforms, it helps me keep talking to cool guests like these guys from Mirrors and sharing their insights with you. And without further ado, here's uh, my conversation with Mirrors. Can you tell me about Seven Day Jesus? Um, yeah, so I grew up in church. My dad was a preacher and um, in West Virginia. So that was kind of like the lexicon that I grew up with, you know. Um, the adults in the room are telling you something, so you believe it because you're a child. So I grew up with um, kind of that world and that lexicon, and um, I started playing music. And, I mean, my parents had like a Southern Gospel quartet um, when I was a baby, so I kind of, music was all around, and it was gospel music, so that was my world. And um, when I started making music seriously as, as a teenager, um, you know, that was the language that I used. Because, again, that was the language I'd kind of grown up with. So um, I was in a band and we made some demos and we got a record deal randomly with the indie label in California. And we just kept playing music and kept, it kept escalating and escalating. And... Um, then I, I found myself a handful of years later questioning a lot of this stuff. You know, like I don't know if I, I don't know if this is my world view. I don't know if I believe all this. And like being in the industry of Christianity, I, uh, I don't know. I saw a lot of things that um, really just didn't align with how I wanted to spend the next fifteen years of my life. So um, I just quit that and moved to Chicago. It's, and that's probably immediately when I met Sean. Because <laughs> it's interesting, like, being in the industry of anything. You're kind of like, oh, this is, this is dirty. This, you know what I mean? Like, there's a thing that takes away, like, the beauty of, like, in, the, in that case, like, uh, belief and faith, right? And, like, the, when it's turned into a, a thing where it has to be reached out and has to be presented a certain way and you have to do a certain thing like it it takes away the individuality of what's beautiful about that and like the music industry is is even worse <laughs> like, to get to get both ends of that in the combo wombo i can see where like in a formative like kind of time like that that's like you know most people like uh, when they're like yeah i was in a teenage band we played some bars but like I, I, I found a, the video for Butterfly. I'm like, this looks like a Foo Fighter video. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, 
I mean, that was definitely concurrent with the color and the shape. That was that was the big album at that time, and that's what kind of all the bands were listening to. That, <laughs> like, so I guess what would be interesting um, to like at growing up around gospel music, it's a different it's a different approach, and it's a different like kind of like the friends I know that do church bands and like uh, just their musicality is different than just like like diving into bands like the Foo Fighters, like they're kind of put off sure. by that. So like, w- was there like a crossover during that time where you're like, like bright eyes is dope. Like, like, um, while um, experiencing this or was that like post in the trying to find? No, I mean, I was into, I mean, I had been into rock music like at the same time. And I'll say like, in the mid to late 90s, that was a time in Christian music where there were a lot of bands that um, really didn't sound like they were Christian at all. Like, they were, they, were, they were just bands making really good music. And the lyrics were more or less about religion and, and faith. But, yeah, that was a different time, um, unlike now where... I. I Again, you you couldn't tell just by like if you didn't know certain bands were a Christian band, like you you wouldn't know. And a lot of that yeah. was, um, I mean, there were there were Midwest bands, but a lot of that was the West Coast, honestly. Like that was kind of where like Seattle and L.A. That those were kind of the, the hubs for for that. But yeah, I mean, I was into rock music. I'm when I was a teenager, also I listened to heavy metal and and pop music. I you know, 80s pop music, I'd say probably informed my sensibilities more than more than anything else, at least initially. Okay. Because, like, yeah, you're right, like, with, like, Creed, or, you know, or bands like that, you know, like, you don't really think of that as being mm-hmm. you know, right on the nose. Um, but, uh, so, Sean, like, what, with your musical background, um, was it similar? No, I mean, I did not come up in music based in faith. No, any any type of faith that came into my life came into when I was 21. It didn't really... I was raised in Chicago, half Mexican, half Irish as a Catholic, and that's just what you are because that's the way that the culture is. But I really didn't come to any type of faith that I would call my own in that world until I was 21. So that was a much different adult experience i haven't had those music business um christianity experiences that brian has had and i've always been very interested to hear more and more of what brian went through at the same time i have a lot of other friends that went through it as well and it was equally as bad if not worse in some cases i think faith is very difficult when you mix commerce into it because you're mixing the ideal with human experience. You're mixing the ideal with human nature right. and um, where those two can combine and really create something beautiful. I think you are setting up an expectation of a return on investment. Um, ultimately someone um, can really potentially get very hurt and that can really create uh, a more of a long-term 
shift in someone's life because we're basing um, an eternal belief on that. So I, I understand that. I completely understand. But for me, it was uh, in, in my music upbringing, it was more family oriented. It was more at the same time around between age six to 10, I specifically remember being raised simultaneously on disco, soul music, heavy metal, or what you would call classic rock now, um, new wave, uh, early, uh, sort of the early uh, 4AD bands, Cocteau Twins, um, all the creation bands coming out of, of, of England. So all that was happening at the same time because my family was very close, still is very close. And while my cousins and siblings are older, music is still part of that fabric. It's still something that connects us. So for me, it was a lot of music exposure and concert exposure before I even began playing a drum kit. And I was self-taught at the time. I really didn't have any lessons until much, much later in my life, I would say in my 30s. Um, maybe even late 20s is when I started to take type of formal instruction. Um, at that point in your musical career, you're more studying under someone than going to classes, than going to, you know, the local music store. So uh, I was sort of a late bloomer in terms of studying technique and studying under people. But I'm glad that I did, I did when I did. I think, like, when you're doing it at that point, it's like, it's the most practical in a way. Like, you can really relate. Yeah. I see where this is going to pay off. And, like, when you do it uh, at a younger age or, you know, when you start doing these techniques before seeing where they're going to go, like, it, I guess the the, yep. the benefit of that is just doing it. Being like, oh, yeah, I guess this this is w these uh, like this sticking and this, like, the, how rudiments work here in this, like, rock tune. I never noticed that until you're doing it. Like, um, but there's kind of a different payoff when you know it right away. You know what I mean? Like this, the see, oh, this is how this is working in in a different like creative kind that, of. Well, that, that, that's, that's exactly. Yeah, you, and you you nailed it. Since I was sixteen, especially when I moved back to Chicago, when I was twenty three, I began to get involved in as many bands as I possibly could because I figured out that that would be my music school. That real-time experience, real-time experience on the road with a lot of bands, real-time experience in as many studios as I could play in and record in, that would be the path that I chose to get educated as quickly as I could because I was already in the present tense. I wasn't in preparation for that. I was in that. So... I, you know, I, do, do, do I, do I, did I carry a little imposter's guilt as I think is everyone's calling it these days? Uh, or is it, is it imposter syndrome, imposter skill, whatever it is. Yeah. 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 <laughs> because here I was in bands at the same time with people that were, you know, top of their class coming out of the Paul, the Paul music school and also Columbia. And that's incredible. And I, I learned so much from them. I'm grateful that I did. And looking back Oh no! Just looking back, I, I, I don't know how I pulled it off, but I did, and I was able to hang with some of these guys, and I'm, I'm grateful that I could, you know. Yeah, it, well, it's interesting in that sense because, like, to to jump right into it, 
and kind of just learn on the fly like that. A lot of times, like, I feel like the academic, like, route takes you to places where it's like, okay, you expect certain things. So in a way, you're, like how you're saying, you're the opposite. You're not in the moment of, like, I'm doing this. And another, like, aspect of that, too, is, like, the availability to be like, yeah, I can do that. See you then. You know what I mean? Sure. See you then. Like, Absolutely. I, 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 yeah. I, and, and, I, and I said yes a lot over and over through the years, and, it, and it, I gained a lot of experience from that. And now here I am at a different period in my life where I, I want the academic. I want to learn these things. I want to continue to grow in those areas on top of the experiential. It just rounds out the experience. It rounds out your understanding of language. And that's really what this comes down to. Music is language. It's a different type of language. So I would say in that sense, teaming up with Brian, uh, even before we started playing music together, I would say that Brian has probably been one of the, the more influential, important teachers of my musical career. It's, it's interesting. You're friends with someone that long and you watch their successes and failures from afar um, and you, you watch how things happen. You watch how things work. And by the way, I'm not even referring just to Brian when I say that, but the many people that you end up coming in contact with and you play with and they become your family, whether it be an extended musical family or something more direct where it turns into a real friendship like I had with Brian. But yeah, Brian has definitely had that influence on me. Definitely taught me a lot through the years. And I don't think that's going to stop. You know? Yeah, that's... It's inter- well, with that, it's like with the uh, the kind of approach to like accepting, not even accepting, but examining failure. And like that, you know, like, because so much of that is like kind of out of, like, you as a friend, you're like, oh, this is sick. What they recorded is amazing. Why isn't everyone aware of this? You know what I mean? And that doesn't make yeah. it a failure yeah. in a way. It's just, what what is that thing? And Or musically seeing like, that would be rad if it had that beat behind it. Or, you know what I mean? Like, as a drummer, like... You mm-hmm. start to orchestrate in a way that other musicians don't, and like that's what makes a drummer's perspective really profound in a way. Um, but and that's also, why so many drummers are produced. Yeah, yeah, and that makes sense, <laughs> like because you're behind that, you're producing the show as it goes, you know. Um, but it, it's interesting. I, I've uh, been working on this book, uh, reading this book by Kenny Warner. Are you familiar? No. He's a jazz uh, no. pianist. Um, and, like, he had this bit in there about music as language. And um, he's like, a lot of musicians, like, uh, say they, they want to sound good when they're doing a thing. Like, I, I just want to make sure I sound good, you know? And, like, he's like, if you put that in the concept of just language, that becomes very shallow. You know what I mean? Yep. I don't want to say anything. I just want to make it yeah, sound that's good. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's... That's pretty heavy. And in a way, coming from like... That is a pretty language. That's a good point. Right? Because there's a lot of times like, how do you put your, your full self into it? And like coming from a place where like, with a, like with Brian's background in a way where it's like kind of like supposed to be heavy in a way. Like this is really meaningful. It means all this, but make sure you, you use this and use this and, you know, land here or whatever direction. Like they would kind of aid you in that and just like trying to find that but um 
But what, I guess what I was going to say was um, to kind of have that kind of already fulfillment in a way of self-knowledge in a way, knowing what you didn't want to do and knowing yeah. what doesn't work, I think really impacts what you guys have done uh, and are doing. So you guys met on a plane? Yeah. We did. We did. Yeah. Um, I will let Sean tell you about that, but I just want to take a second and um, I just, just I want to spend a second on what you just said. I think that's very true. I think Sean and I, having both been in multiple musical scenarios for several years, brought us to a place where when we started playing, we really knew what we didn't want. And what we did want was maybe self-defining as we continued to play, but we definitely knew what we didn't want. And it was very helpful in kind of helping us get to where we are now. But uh, the airplane thing, yeah, that's that's another thing. (laughs) Yeah, that was a, I mean, that, that, you know, talk about moments that definitely shaped the rest of your, uh, your life, or at least most of it. We were both on a connecting flight to Atlanta. He was meeting his band and I was meeting someone, I think on my way to Los Angeles and the flight was empty and we were sitting in the back with no one else around when Brian was sitting directly behind me wearing a pair of headphones. And I noticed that I just, he kept to myself towards the end of the flight. When we began descending, he, Tapped me on the shoulder and said, Hey man, listen to this. And it wound up being the first single from the Icelandic band Sigaros. I'm not going to try to pronounce it. But it was <laughs> a really beautiful song. A song that really broke them. And they went up on a motion picture soundtrack after that. And he had a little Sony Discman. And I really I remember listening to that and thinking at the same time. If this guy has this type of sensibility, what else is he about? And we kept in touch. We got each other's information. Kept in touch. I learned that he was in a band that I really admired. And I started watching the videos and seeing what they were up to from afar. But then I began to check out his band. And I would see him around time, you know, different uh places around town and and we started hanging out more consistently and that was before we even really began playing music together before we even began jamming together i think we just accepted each other as friends as humans and that was great because there wasn't an agenda did i want to play with him absolutely you know i I can't say he felt the same way about, about me i don't think he really knew much about me but that aside, I really thought, oh, this, this is the guy I want to know for a long time. Um, I was very interested. I think we were both in a place of rediscovery. I think we were both in the place of questioning not only what we believed, but who we were. And that's what happened at that age. That's exactly what happened at that age. Or I, I should say, that's what should happen at that age. Yeah. People don't reach that. <laughs> Some people don't reach that, but Brian and I, we're, we're, we, we, we think, we think to a fault sometimes, <laughs> but, um, but, but I will say it was, it was really lovely starting with the friendship first. And it wasn't until sometime down the line 
when I think that Brian began to see my consistency um, in my involvement in things. And I think when I began to see his availability with his involvement in things, I think that's when Brian had suggested we finally get together and start working on some music. Now we had jam before in 2004, 2005, just for fun, just to feel each other out, just because we had time in between the bands that we were in. I was in seven bands at the time. And I think Brian had, at the time, Brian was really working a lot in being a co-writer with people. I think Brian was trying to find his foot and trying to find out geographically where he was going to land. And at the time, he was in Nashville. If I have that correct, I think he was going back and forth. And Brian had already gotten involved in teching, doing a lot of tour teching on the road. So Brian was everywhere, and he traveled in a way that I really admired. I wanted to do that much traveling. I wanted to have that kind of experience. So when we started working on things in a more serious manner, that's when we figured out that this could be something that could really sustain, that we had material already that we felt we could work towards um, the idea of an album. That That's interesting with like this... like. Um kind of off what before before diving into the plane story what brian said in just that kind of moment of time where you're kind of uh self-analyzing and then a band the band names mirrors you know uh, the self-reflection is it's kind of like you, you uh, in a mirror you can see what you want to see um is this, is this group yep. kind of that was that kind of like the the forethought of the name or is the name just that because like yeah yeah the idea of the name was that we are mirrors to each other and that we can't help but be like when you're talking to another person, no matter what you, no matter what you are trying to put out or who, whoever you're trying to be, when you're interacting with other people, you are getting feedback back from them that is reflecting to you who you are, who you, who you truly are. You know, when you think about it, too, we, all, we are what we do. The music that we listen to, the music that we choose, the type of films that we choose, the kind of art that we absorb, oftentimes ref- it, it reflects the things, it, it, it sort of reflects where we stand at that time. So for us to take this to the public, for people to share in what we're doing musically, but also visually when we play a show, um, I think reflecting to them is equally as important. I think the way that they absorb music, the way that they experience what they see when when we uh, when we share the stuff with them, you know, it's very important that that continues. I think I think that's well said, and like I think that really kind of matches like the music that's on the record. And like uh, one one thing I like going through it. Um, like when Howard when Howard sends me anything, I just listen to it. You know, I don't read anything until after listening to it. And with a uh, Paralyze, sure. like the first tune, I was like, "What is? I'm in. <laughs> this is so different, like from what Howard normally sends me." And like, I was like, "This is like the the vocal delivery on it. Like, I really got like Radiohead kind of vibes going." And I don't is is that kind of like an influence? Would you say? on some of these tracks like more Radiohead is a band that we both respect a lot yeah cuz on their Radiohead is yeah. one band that pretty pretty much everybody in our band agrees on that 
you know, have been, they have been influential to us for sure. Cause like, there are many bands, but they, they definitely are a big one. (laughs) Okay. Okay, cool. Cause like there's, there's something to that space that that type of music allows that has that kind of reflection in a way like and maybe maybe I'm, I'm hearing that Radiohead influence kind of tonally um and like vocal delivery on some of the tunes like uh, uh Sinistry like even in the your guys's live video which was very well done using the what me and my buddy Jay called the Yorkophone that microphone with um the I can't I can't <laughs> I, I, you know, I just know it's in the their live basement take um uh the uh, Ari 20 Electro yeah. voice Ari 20 yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought it was going to be Neumann, sorry. Um, I mean, a Neumann's always going to be good no matter what, but the one in particular is that, like, beige-looking one with the... Uh, yeah, I, yeah, that's yeah. right. It's an electric voice. It's, <laughs> they've been around for a long time. They handle low-end pretty well. A lot of people usually use them on, like, bass guitar, but they are very good at, like, um, what's called proximity effect. Like, you can put your mouth right on it, and it doesn't get super bassy and boomy. And it, it allows... It's good for live vocals. Like, if you need to put your mouth on the mic and right. get, like, a tight sound without getting drums and guitars and everything else, like, in the microphone, it's good for that. So is the SM7, which is the microphone that everyone in the universe uses for <laughs> podcasting right now. They're both kind of, like... They're both at that... They're both good at that thing. Yeah. Was it a, and well, either way, like I was just like, I, I don't know if that's a, that, that sounds like more of a producer nod, like this is going to work, <laughs> but it, with that type of delivery, like yeah. with that kind of like, uh, upper, uh, head, head chesty voice, like, um, is that like kind of diving to like listening back to like butterfly, like in listening to now, um, there's a similar vocal approach, like. I was like, yeah. yeah, I'll tell you what it is. When I was a teenager, when I was coming up in church, there was a singer who was a pop Christian singer. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm going to keep this as short as possible. Um, kind of the godfather of the Christian music industry is this old man named Bill Gaither from Indiana. He basically like has 20 songs in the hymnal. Like he's, he's the OG, right? Yeah. So he tours with a Southern gospel quartet and discovers new, new talent. So when I was a young teenager, um, he discovered this pop singer named Michael English, a Christian pop singer. And this guy really changed my life. Like his voice, when I heard him sing, it was like, it was like, yeah, that's, that's incredible. That he, he just like had such a powerful, incredibly powerful chest voice and his range was very high, but his delivery was just so incredibly emotional. And like in hindsight, like knowing what I know about him now, like years later, there were like lots of scandals and stuff. And he got like all these awards. He was like the darling one year. He won all these awards in Christian music. Like Nora Jones, when his first album came out, he won everything. And then he, you know, has an affair and all this crazy stuff happens. And and then you find out about his childhood and it's really troubled. And, and it's like, no, it, it's no surprise to me now, like all of the emotion that came through in this man's performances, because he really lived some stuff, you know, and whether it's like Christian music or pop music or whatever, he's a human, first of all, before any style. And um, I think that's just some of that darkness was really what like came through and made him so 
such a force. And yeah, Michael English, he was the guy that made me want to sing like that. And it wasn't until probably five years later that I ever heard Radiohead um, and Jeff Buckley. I heard Radiohead and Jeff Buckley right around the same time, but it definitely all started with Michael English. Like if you listen to Michael English, and I'll say the Seven Day Jesus Band that I was in, we were in high school and we were into really heavy, heavy music. There was a local band in West Virginia called Chum, C-H-U-M, and they were not a Christian band. They were like drop D, drop C guitar, drop B and C, like slow, heavy. And they were our favorite band in the world. All we wanted to be was Chum. So then we start making music, and I'm nuts about this pop Christian singer, Michael English. So I start singing like Michael English over this heavy, slow guitar music and and everybody's like what is this and i think that's one of the reasons why the band that we were in was successful and why we got signed because it was like this doesn't make sense this doesn't sound like anything that we've heard and and honestly i mean i'll just say like it was emo before emo was emo we're talking like 1995 i mean it really was 1994 that was emo before emo was emo and um, I mean, if you listen to the Michael English, you'll hear it, man. It's like that's what it was. That's a, that's a good description of it. That's a great description of it. It's interesting, like so uh, with the whole like because uh, also Jeff Buckley has that kind of like that same range too. And like, uh, did you so with the because you guys cover Gunshot Glitter on on which is like a Buckley like B side or a Buckley demo, right? Is that like the first like um did you find that that weird demo like record before or is it like yeah so was that the first before brian and i I would say three years before brian and i met we on our own both of us found gunshot glitter on a japanese import version of my sweetheart the trunk and i'm grateful that we did because Individually, that became one of our favorite songs, one of our favorite Buckley songs. It wasn't until I brought it up over dinner, I would say 22 or 23 years later, that, hey, we should do this. And I was surprised at Brian's reaction. He loved it. He knew it right away. He's like, that's that's the one if we're going to do it. Um, That song and a song called Thousandfold were the two songs that were extra on sketches. Why it wasn't included beyond me. I don't know why they include, they did not include it in the original pressing, but they should have. And to this day, that's still one of my favorite Jeff Buckley songs, even if it was a four track cassette, you know, um, that he made by himself at his house in Memphis. I listened to that take that song for the first time in a while, only because we've put so much focus and time into playing that song in the studio, but also playing it live. We perform it live at most of our sets. And it was really fun revisiting it. I hadn't listened to it in a couple of years. And going back to it was really exciting. It really was. It was like, oh my God, this is. It still stood on its own, even though I, we, you know, dared to make a imagined completion of the song. It really is something that's just 
singular and unique on its own. It's just a gorgeous piece of work. Just when you learn about how he made the song and everything percussive, and it, it's incredible to me that that sits in someone's head, you know, as evidenced by this four track tape, that that is in his head, that that swims around in his mind. That's what he thinks about. That's what he puts down. <laughs> you know, Brian and I were having a talk a, a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, we were talking about the thoughts that it's just a realization to both of us that Buckley never got to stream a song. He never heard things in a digital format beyond CD. He never worked with Pro Tools. He never, I mean, there's just so many things that Buckley never saw coming and never got to do. Um, that's fascinating to us because I think he's one of those last, I hate the word icon, I think it's so bullshit and so overused, but in this case, he really is he's one of the last greats that was completely coming from an analog world. And I love that. I, I almost like that he didn't get to hop over to the other side. At the same time, it begs the question, what would it have been like if he did? What would have happened? What would he be thinking of? You know? I love that. I love that train I don't of thought, know. though. Like, because that, like, when someone's that, like, like inspiring or that just, like, kind of, like, breathtaking, and then you really just start to analyze, well, they were working with uh, stones and sticks and, like, all that, you know what I mean? Like, when someone, like, confounds your brain that much to analyze what they actually had to do, had to do it with, is, like, the next level of, That's like, movement, you know? And, like... That is the difference right there, that he, artists of that level, defined the take. The take does not define. You yeah. can't just say no, 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 no. That that was let's just let's just, let's just fix it in post. No, <laughs> that's not what happened. <laughs> I mean, you could you know, punch I mean, in, but like sure. you could sure. tune. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. And well, you know, there's like, oh man, like, like I I appreciate the technology where we, uh, what's the program? Not uh, melodica. Uh, mel mel uh, melodyne. Melodyne. Thank you. Like. It's such a great tool for fixing like little things, but like I feel like so many people just leave it right up there and don't, you know, if you can fix it, go back and track it again <laughs> now that you know how it goes, you know what I mean? Like, um, yeah, like it, it, because it, we, if you just leave that like kind of digital fix on it, 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 it comes off, you know what I mean? There's there, like Jeff Buckley sounds so fresh and so real and honest and moving. Because of that, you know, all the mistakes and flaws that may be in there, like, are him. And, like, we celebrate those in that sense. Like, they don't sound like flaws in that way. Um, it's a really interesting uh, uh, train of thought with, like, stuff like that. Like, I, I listened to this, uh, there's this uh, 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 Adam Neely, uh, a YouTube cat, and he took all these, like, classic soul songs and, like, ran them through that program and pitch fixed them so they were right on right on cue and it is they're off kilter like huh. aretha franklin and like bill withers and led zeppelin like just moving them that little bit like it's just a little unsettling um so there's there's that beauty within that that margin of error that our brains i think relate to human like humanity within that um but uh what like taking it from this demo to what you guys did with it. Like I went back and forth between the two a few times, like, and like, 
like you're saying, like it's all kind of there. Like what you guys did, like I think just highlighted what would have been done in in the best way. You know what I mean? Like, um, like like how you're saying, Sean, all these rhythms in, in there, and like everything's. It's amazing that this demo is so well thought out. You know, <laughs> in a way, like like this is just an idea he's yeah. he's putting down. And like your guys' take on it is fantastic, and like it it fits really really well with this record. And now kind of hearing your guys's um, individual like uh, tracking of this record and of Jeff uh, Jeff Buckley into your like music career and like life, um, I think it's very form fit or very very perfectly fitting for the idea of the self reflection and like. But uh, it's a, yeah, that's so like what's. Were you messing around with other tunes of his, or is this just the one that just clicked and we we're like, "This is it"? That was the we only one we really it. considered doing. Okay. Uh, yeah. We... Because partly because it was unfinished, and partly because no one really knew the song. Because when it came out, when sketches came out for very many years, it was only available if you had the Japanese import version of that album, not even if you bought sketches, you, it was not even on there. It was just a very rare song. So we thought, well, number one, we love it. Number two, not many people know it. Number three, like it's unfinished. So for all of those reasons, it would be, you know, not like a normal cover where there's an expectation. Well, you didn't do it as well as the song. It's like, well, the song is a demo. Right. So there's, you know, not really much to hold hold our version up to or up against. That's it's almost like kind of someone wrote a song for someone else in that sense, but taking it like a to your own, and like that's a be like like you're saying that's a really cool like a, a creative endeavor in that sense because there is none of those expectations of like oh you didn't hit the third harmony here and it didn't sound like Jack Black so that's not a good Tenacious D cover or whatever, um, right. <laughs> But like, uh, so with, so you were kind of working on being a, a songwriter in Nashville. What was that like? Like as far I guess as coming from a place where you're writing your own music, um, do you? And I, I just talked to a uh, Vashti Bunyan about this, and she was saying she really has trouble writing with other people, like in the, the songwriting sense. Like, do you? Is that easier for you or? Was that whole process? No, I, okay. I, it's not easy at, at all. I tried it and I really, like I did a handful of co-writes with other people and there were a few people that I wrote with that, um, you know, I just haven't done a ton of it. There were a few people that I wrote with that I felt like this could work, but the majority of the co-writes, um, I just, I, I really didn't like it. And the reason is because Professional songwriters, when you get in a room, you um, you have the intent of, and, and it's not just the intent, you do. You finish a song when you leave. And then, you know, it, it might not be super produced or whatever, but it's the skeleton of a song. It might just be a piano sample and then a scratch vocal, but you have the lyrics, you have the structure. And it's super basic. It's, you know, A, B, A, B, C, B. It's like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. And like, it, that's that's just what it is. But for me, like my, I like, like I have songs like, you know, Sean and I really came up with the majority of the songs on the first Mirrors album 
from our early sessions, but there are a few songs, one in particularly knockoff um, or in particular knockoff came from a demo that I made in probably 2004 in Chicago. And I have a lot of songs like that that just kick around forever and ever, or even songs that I'm actively working on, on for an album. Like I'll, I'll really take my time until I figure it out like a puzzle, you know, until it makes me feel until every part of the song makes me feel like, yes, I wouldn't, I want to listen to this, whether I wrote it or not, I want to listen to it because it's cool. And there are little treats and hidden things. And, and part of that is production, not just lyrics. So I think if you're a professional songwriter, you just cut, you have to cut way too many corners. And I think that the product suffers where I like to tease out what's special about an idea that could take a year. It could take six years until you solve it. And that just, to me, like, I always felt like we're not really, we're just like cutting corners. We're phoning it in. Not that you can't write a great song in a day. Cause I've, I've definitely finished songs in a day, but that is the rare exception versus like, we've done that as a band, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's interesting when you have, like, a, a time, like, I guess as far as, like, a, a practical, like, I will write for this hour to this hour. That's a great exercise to get your mind in that space, but, like. I it's a good that, exercise for coming up with a seed. Yes. That's a well, a song, that's perfect to get a song seed and a nugget, and then, like, to let that, that seed grow into a plant doesn't happen within a, a day. It happens within multiple takes with, like, a band and, like, self-examination of what you can do to make it. Right. Oddly, uh, and you know, honestly, that process probably still does happen frequently when, like, let's say a team of songwriters get together and three people get together in a room and they write a song. And to me, I would be like, I don't think this is done. That process, when it gets pitched by their publishers to like a country artist or whatever, um, it still might, that seed might grow up and change into something very different, but not with those three writers, maybe with the artist and the producer when they're in the studio. But for me, if I'm the person, if this is like my last, I get attached to an idea. And if this is like my last ex exposure to an idea, I want it to be awesome and exciting. I don't want to just like half-ass it and then like give it to a publishing company to just throw out there into the world. Yeah, that I mean, like when you're connected to it, and you really like, cause it, there's like those like, like those moments of inspiration that you really can see, or you get that feeling where I can make this into something, like you know, what I mean, like I I don't know what that is, like, but when I'm writing stuff or like, uh, when I get like that, the, like that will sink in your brain forever until it's done. <laughs> Whatever, whatever, some, some of those mm -hmm. moments are s that impactful or some of those like song seeds or some of those like, uh, brief passing bys of less like that would be a really cool thing if it did this. So I can see like that being kind of like a real frustrating in a way or real like, uh, um, like s gear grinding in the spirit, like to see it just kind of be put in a fridge and <laughs> like, yeah, maybe someone will eat it. You know? Yeah. And you know. It's just a different thing. Like yeah. for, for, for one person, there are lots of songwriters who don't want to be artists and they don't want to toil over a song. They just maybe are really clever with coming up with um, rhyming schemes or metaphors and where they really get the most joy 
is coming up with something in an hour and they don't really care. They're just like, wow, we really did it. We came up with a cool idea. Cause like a lot of people who do co-write sessions anyway are, are writing for pop or country music. And in those cases, it really is about like a clever lyric or a clever catch phrase. Whereas what mirrors does is a very different thing. Like we're creating something more abstract and, in, in amorphous and you and, and maybe a little more difficult to define and it's not e you can't easily put it on pop radio or whatever and to me that's just more fulfilling for me but for you know someone else it might be wow i don't even want to do what you guys do that sounds terrible i just want to come up with like a, a really awesome seed you know catchy chorus lyric and then just like pass it off to someone else I think all of us remember that time. Oh, go ahead. I mean, I, I remember, all of us remember, I think it was in October of 2000 when the first single from Kid A, Optimistic, hit the radio. I remember hearing Optimistic for the first time. I was living, I think, with my first roommates, and I was driving up to the apartment. I was in the parking lot. And the local station here, XRT, played it for the first time. And I remember listening to Optimistic, and I thought, this is so interesting. This makes no sense to me. I've never heard something like this before. I thought I knew this band from OK Computer. And here was a song that there were no snares until the sort of bridge areas that would come in. It was just all toms. I mean, just the whole thing didn't really make a lot of sense to me. It was so intriguing, and I thought to myself, how is this on radio right now? And it was. And I remember how many people I talked to in that week, if not that month, that were just so moved by that song and so moved by that record when it came out. I remember that record came out and it just, again, changed a lot of the face of music. It changed production. It changed what can happen vocally. I think... Um, Nigel Godrich was then known not only from Radiohead, but from, you know, from what he was doing, what he was making. I, it, it just, everything changed. Um, a lot of bands, some bands broke up. <laughs> a lot of bands just couldn't hang with that. And um, I think I remember reading a story or listening to an interview with the guitarist from Limp Bizkit, West something, I forgot what his name was. But I remember him talking specifically about wanting to leave that band after hearing today. He was so huh. impacted by where music was going. He was so impacted by a band that really was putting their heart on their sleeve. He was so impacted by such a genuine, authentic presentation of music that he felt embarrassed. You know, I think at that point, he, he took up he took out the black contact lenses and, you know, and, and, and got, got out of the whole new metal thing. He quit. And who knows what they're doing now. But my whole point is that what we hear at first can startle us to a point where <laughs> it locks us in for a long time. Um, yeah, that's all I have to say on that. I'm just an example of, of how something that really doesn't make sense, it, it is as... Brian said amorphous, it's, it's the, the, the term I've used is that we're giving shape to, to the abstract. 
And I think that's the way it's going to continue to be for, for a while. I think that's very well said. And like, I think there's something to that, that, that something can be so honest and so pure and so like, it seems like left field, but it's just, it's just them, you know, that it should have that mere effect on you where you reflect on what you're doing, you know, to like try to, yeah. if something is that potent, it has that effect and it makes you redefine like what, what you should be doing in a way, or just even what you are doing and trying to find the honesty within it. Because like whatever you're doing, if, if, if it has that emotional intent that's connected to that core, if it's not you just talking to sound good, but you talking to say something, it's, it's going to that the purity is going to be there in that honest attempt, no matter what style genre, even if it's uh, technically good or bad, it will resonate. And like that's that's a really I didn't know that that's a really cool, impactful story. Yeah, yeah, I'll never forget it. <laughs> I'll yeah. never forget where I was when I heard it the first time. And that happens with a lot of music. Yeah, but this yeah. was something way more abstract that gave us reviews to listen to. Well, and, it, it, and then we all know what happens after that. Yeah, well, and, and when you know what it is and when you're equally as curious about it and it's, it's, it's something that you're attached to too, like to see that reflection, to see like, because in our, in our minds a lot of times like we're like, I, I, I shouldn't say we, but I maybe like, um, you find a cool band that no one knows of, and you're like, ah, oh, this is cool. I'm in the hidden club, I, uh, you know, in the, the, the poet society yeah. of knowing yeah. cool, cool uh, words and sounds that move me. And well said, that was said. <laughs> <laughs> probably right. don't right. move anyone else. And as soon as you see that, oh wait, this does this not only moves other people, the the music I actively rebel against is taking shape from it. That's cool, man. Like, wow. Oh, that's so uplifting. No, you're ab you absolutely right. Yeah, yep, you're absolutely right. I love when that happens. And I guess I guess what it is, it, it just even the guys that are doing the thing that's corny, you know what I mean? Or like you're not particularly uh touched by it, it, when you see them interact in that way, they, they become human too. And like and that, that kind of goes back to the the, the humanness of everything and like that we were kind of touching upon earlier. That's really cool. Wow. Yeah, you're exactly right. Somebody said to me once, um, I have a friend who is a, uh, he works in hospice care. He's a director at a hospital and, um, in West Virginia where I grew up. He's one of my best friends. Um, I went to high school with, and he, um, we were just talking one day about vulnerability and he said, vulnerability can be trusted. And, um, that's, I think that's very profound. And I think that when you listen to music where there is some vulnerability, you feel it, whether you have a name for it or not, or whether you know that's what it is that you are experiencing, I think you recognize it. And I think that's where, um, whether it's like you, you, when we started this call, you mentioned that, like, what does it mean for, for music to be good? Like, even if it's technically not perfect, or if you're singing a little off key, like when, when you're vulnerable and your voice cracks in a recording, like when you're listening to Manish Boy and, um, you know, the vocal just, just cracks into a scream. It's like, 
gosh, it gives you chills. You feel it. Like that's, that's far from technically perfect, but it's perfect. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's per- like how you're saying perfectly vulnerable. And, uh, I've done, I've done some, uh, um, what they call practicum stuff in hospice. And that's a tough gig. That, that's a tough, that's a tough place to be in. But like, there's a certain like, uh, like acceptance you see with people that kind of like deal with death a lot. And there's like even being around some loss and like going through things like that, it redefines how you like, like in take in certain things and certain like certain vulnerability becomes more clear because of being around stuff like that. Uh, and like it's, I'd imagine mm-hmm. like being in the in the uh, in the business as like long as you have and all these different aspects like i don't like because that's that it's really what moves us is this connection this this acceptance to this vulnerable space and like but like as far as like seeing that on the other end of things is that a thing that like is taken into account at all i'd imagine it would have to be a little bit from your experience uh, what do you mean the other end of things like on the in the business end of things do they like kind of like uh can you do like a more uh more like realistic take of it or like do the, is it like as far as like working on like i've definitely been in situations yeah. you mean like in the studio i've definitely been in studio situations okay. where people are coaching performances to get more of you know whatever emotional response they're looking for out of the performance but that's been a very long time. I'm, I am my own self police these days. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I relate to that. <laughs> I relate to that. I think we all are to some degree with, with any recording, but you know, that's the beauty of it. You spend so long learning what you could sound like and what you do sound like that, you know, when you need the sound a certain way, like how to express that, you know, um, from hours of <laughs> self reflection and, like grinding your head against why can't I make it sound like that? <laughs> um, yeah. I guess one last thing I wanted to ask about before letting you guys go. Um, and I really appreciate your time and the album's fantastic. And I'm really excited to uh, see like, wait, I don't know. Are you guys planning on touring? We are, we're putting them together dates right now. Actually nice. we're scheduling everything for, Heading out east, heading south, southwest. So I think this year and next, you, you'll be seeing a lot of us. So I'd like you to catch a show if you can. Yeah, are you coming to Cleveland? That's the plan. Yeah, I'm going to play Happy. <laughs> play Happy. Hopefully, Dog? yeah. Really, yeah. I'm really thinking Happy Dog is the is is, is the place the first time. Okay. Very I was cool. really fond of that place. There, I played there some years back with Will Phelan, and I was blown yeah. away at how much I enjoyed there. Oh, then you can the whole concept you, of it. It's it's wild. Like you, you don't like. It seems like it's not gonna like. You go in and you're like, oh, people are here to eat. They're they're gonna walk away when there's a door fine, <laughs> like a door fee, and like. But it 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 gets slammed. Happy dogs a bumping spot. People chow down on it's dogs great, and it is, sit up. It is, it is great. It is so great. The little arcade, little projector room. It's just a wonderful place. I was surprised how well it sounded for being yeah. the type of place and the way it was laid out. I was like, this sounds great. I had a great time. It sounds great. I have a few friends that live out there, and everyone's real cool. Everyone's really into music. There's a thing going on there. So I think when we book the route that takes us out east to, to, to um, the route that takes us east to New York or Boston, that will absolutely be on the way. Very cool. Very cool. 
Well, drop me a line. I definitely want to see you guys. Um, but hundred percent, we absolutely. I wanted to ask about Spasmatic because that tune, as far as like highlighting both of your guys' like um, skill set, is like on point. <laughs> like, where did that come from? Was that one that was like in the ether, held on for a while, or was that one that came out of jamming? Well, we wrote yeah. that idea when we pretty much when we started playing music together. That was one of the first ideas we wrote. Really. That was the first yes. day. Yeah. The first yeah. day when we decided to do that was uh, one of four songs that made the record years later. I remember the excitement we felt on that. I remember that specifically. Somewhere there's an iPhone demo of that song that still exists. And I remember the excitement. Not only did we already have all the ideas that we had, that was later in the session. That was towards the end. I think that was one of the last... Demos yeah, that was the, the first songs we wrote, and it was the last song that we finished. <laughs> it's incredible. It's incredible. It really took a long time to get that one right. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it, it finally found its home, and it did it in a very immediate way when it came time to finish it for the record. Brian and I were in Omaha, in Nebraska. And he was doing some solo stuff, and we had some friends from this band called Bird and Butterfly that we were hanging out with out there. And it was while we were trying to figure out how to fly back home, because one of our flights got canceled, that we decided to divert to Chicago and finally finally put the pieces together here at my home, where we work, we work on writing songs, we rehearse, we work on demoing stuff here at my place. It, it made sense that that's where we returned to finally finish something that wound up being one of the better songs in the record. Is that two questions on? It. Is your place Narwhal or Narwhal Studios? Narwhal is a different guy. Narwhal. No, <laughs> no, Narwhal. Narwhal. Narwhal Studios is where Brian mixes the. Yeah, Narwhal is where the. Yeah, that's where the record was mixed. It's also where we made a film called Definitive Version that we're going to be releasing shortly after the record comes. Okay, that's awesome. Like, well, and and I guess the other one on that, it's like it's such a that's a beautiful cap to like this kind of self discovery as a group, and like starting with this idea, and because there's that thing when you click something, and like when like you sing with someone and they sing in harmony without without knowing, right? Just doing, or if you play something, someone lays that thing that just is super inspiring and exciting. That moment is like, that's the essence that drives like, that's like the one good gig out of like the seven bad gigs that make you keep doing the bad gigs that, you know what I mean? That whatever that energy is. And th so that's a beautiful cap that that's what you guys started with and kind of how you cap this record. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of thinking right. about it. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. It was the last thing that we worked on before the record was finished. Beautiful. Well, guys, thank you so much for your time. Um, the record comes out when? April. No, the record comes out next Friday. Next Friday? Cool, cool. Uh, Yo, Spike Spiegel here. You just listened to Zig of the Gig podcast. Keep riding the bebop. See you, Space Cowboy. Bang.